obviously a key scene in this movie is a small town Texas diner. Uh, you know, they're placing their orders for their meals. And it just kind of got me thinking, like, all three of us born and raised were Texans. We grew up in Texas. What is your go-to order at these small town Texas restaurants? Are we talking breakfast or lunch or dinner? Oh, that's a good point, Keith. It's a good point. How about brunch and dinner? Oh, okay. I got my brunch for sure. I might have to think about my dinner. My brunch is definitely some eggs, hash browns, and biscuits smothered with gravy. Yeah, I mean, just to just to throw mine out there, my my number one is any type of biscuit. They're always best at places like this. Got a little butter, maybe some jam. I don't know if I'm feeling crazy, and you're good to go. That thing will fill you up, and when I say that thing, I mean three at least. <laughs> <laughs> See, my, my go-to is a little a little different because I, if I'm going for brunch, I got to be feeling greasy. So I'm doing <laughs> fried chicken and waffles. <laughs> oh, that's a good call. Yeah, I, Ooh, I was thinking about waffles, waffles too, actually. Yeah. Oh man, fried chicken. Oh, so good. That, that is good. That's a good call. You got to you got to leave just feeling disgusted with yourself. <laughs> you need to go home and hide from the world after you go to brunch at one of these places. Well, what about dinner then? What about dinner? Because I mean, this movie they talked about the steak, and I think that's kind of where I'm leaning. I feel like any kind of steak, actually, not any kind. I'd probably go T-bone as well at a place like this, but I gotta go steak. Probably go ribeye and maybe some mashed potatoes, or just completely switch it up and go with a nice greasy burger as well. Ooh, these places do have good burgers, especially if you do like a two-pounder, get some two patties on there. Man, yeah. that's a good burger. That's a good burger. I think for me, I'll probably stick with steak as well, but I, I think I got to go flank steak. I'm, I'm a big flank guy. I like mm. flank too. I feel like the tricky thing is I love corn, but corn on the cob, I don't know if there's anything more messy. Like that just leaves you feeling like you could brush your teeth for the next week and you're still going to have something to snack on a little bit. But corn <laughs> yeah. on the cob at these places is probably a good call, too. And if these places cook their corn on the cob right, I mean, you're going to burn your hands while you're eating that sucker. That's what you want. That's what you want. They also, kind of just like in the movie, these places also have like the best. Like the waitress in this movie is pretty accurate, I feel like. I feel like these are the oh, type of yeah. people you're going to meet at uh, these types of restaurants. And I like it. I love it. She just tells you what, what you're going to order. Basically, you have no yeah. choice. For sure, for sure. If you're, if you're not terrified of your server, you're in the wrong place, my friend. <laughs> There's just one thing on the menu. They're probably going to be playing some type of like um, church hymn as well. <laughs> probably going to be playing some uh, Christian music. Little, uh... Well, it probably, it probably has a biblical name too, like uh, Eden's Cafe or something <laughs> like that. That's a good name. There's got to be a place called Eden's Cafe. There's got to be. And we got to go there. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. We are three Texas oilmen with nothing better to do. I'm Austin Terry, and I'm only here for the steak and potatoes. I'm Keith Baker, and I'm the Lord of the Plains. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm going to try and talk completely unintelligibly the rest of this podcast, just like my main man, Jeff Bridges. On today's show, we'll be discussing one of Keith's favorite movies, Hell or High Water, but before we get to that, Matt, we just released the very first episode of our latest bonus series. How was Loki this week? Loki was really good. I got to say, like we talked about in the lead up, I wasn't really looking forward to it too much. But that first episode got me pretty damn hooked. So I am really excited to see where this show goes. And I'm even more excited to break it down with you guys each and every week. And since they're releasing their episodes every Wednesday, you can catch our thoughts coming out every Friday. 
I got to know, guys, we're a few days uh, removed from this latest episode of Loki. Now that it's sat with you for a little bit, do you have any theories for episode two? My theory isn't too exciting, but I think it'll lead to a fun episode, and it's that I think we're in for some wacky hijinks through time with Loki and Mobius, played by, of course, Owen Wilson. I think we're going to see some funny time travel elements. They're going to be checking out some weird locales, and it's going to be fun. Oh, I like that. I like the idea of putting this Loki into like the Middle Ages or something on Earth. Oh, I think that could be really fun. That. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, like Matt said, our reviews will be out every Friday. And if you missed last week's episode, just scroll back a little bit and check it out to hear our thoughts on episode one of Loki. And with that, my friends, let's get into our main topic for today. We are continuing a series that we started a while back, our favorite movies. In this series, we each take turns selecting one of our favorite movies, revisit it, and then discuss why we love it so much. This week, it is Keith's turn, and he has selected Hell or High Water. Hell or High Water was released in 2016, and it's written by Taylor Sheridan as part of his American Frontier trilogy, the other films being Sicario and Wind River. It is a modern-day western set in West Texas and follows a pair of brothers as they attempt to rob several branches of the Texas Midlands Bank. So, Keith, why is this one of your favorite movies? Yeah, I think first off, the story. Yeah, it's just a... Your classic American tale of, you know, desperation and hardship and what one guy might do to, you know, save his family. He might have to hook up with an evil brother and rob some banks. As far as the genre, I love Westerns. I'm a sucker for Westerns, um, ones that came out back in the day with John Wayne and then maybe some new ones. Uh, shout out to like 310 Yuma with Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. Ben Foster as well. Oh, yeah, and Ben Foster as well as Charlie Prince. Charlie Prince. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Ben Foster's back in this one. Um, but, yeah, not all Westerns have to take place in the 1800s, which is why I like this one. I mean, this one, it takes place in modern day, which I think they blend it really well. Um, and you have everything from your classic Westerns. I mean, you have the outlaws. You have the conflicted guy in the whole scheme of things. And then you have the Texas Rangers chasing after him. Uh, so, yeah, it's just fun. And then uh, I think third, I think I like the uh, the acting and the characters. I mean, everybody played their part so well. I mean, it's it's really hard to choose who is the best in this movie. Uh, I mean, you guys might disagree. Maybe y'all do have a top dog in this one. But for me, I think they're all pretty distinguished. But yeah, it's just a good American Western that just, yeah, it tells a lot between the lines. So yeah, that's why it's one of my favorites. I think I kind of agree with everything there. Like I've kind of told you guys, this was actually my first ever viewing of Hell or High Water. I, I missed it on its theatrical release, and I, I was pretty blown away. I, I think this is a pretty perfect Western, especially being a modern Western. I think you can really tell, like, I think these types of movies, especially if it is like, I guess you could say a period piece just set in West Texas, I think it's really easy to miss the marks on these types of film. But I, I think because Taylor Sheridan, who grew up in Texas and grew up in a small kind of western town in texas i I think because he's lived this experience i think he really nailed what it exactly is like like we tease in our cold open but we're all from texas and and we've been in these types of towns before and they really nailed the atmosphere of this movie uh, of what it's like in some of these small kind of southern towns and um i I think the characters are stand out for me chris pine i think this is just such a unique role and, and something different i've never seen from him in his other movies he's really the standout here um, I think the writing is fantastic, and I just think the way everything kind of culminates in the final third act, I, th- I think it ends on such a high note as well. Yeah, I saw this movie back in theaters as well, uh, just like Keith, and I haven't seen it since then. So it's been, I guess, now five years, which sounds crazy to say, but 
I really enjoyed going back and watching this one. I definitely don't think I love it as much, but I still really like it, and I'm just really impressed by this movie. I think that's the perfect word for me. It's just really impressive. I don't know how they created a Western that feels so authentic while not falling into a lot of the tropes we see in a lot of Westerns, which can be really like obvious and make them a little bit boring and feel the same. And so that combined with the fact that they give us these characters for primarily and in less than two hours, they really just deliver some fantastic performances. And whether or not you like them, I think is kind of up for debate, particularly for me. But they're very interesting and you get a lot more from these characters than you would in most movies. So kind of like Austin said, I think Taylor Sheridan honestly might be the shout out here. I don't know how he was able to do all of these things in one package as the right. Obviously, David McKenzie directed it, but the writing, I think, is the standout for me for sure. Yeah, and, and actually watching this movie caused me to want to go check out his other American Frontier films. Um, I'd seen Sicario, but I'd never seen Wind River. Mm. And I think Taylor Sheridan just, man, he nails it in all three of these movies. The writing and the characters and just the way he establishes the worlds that these people are living in, all of it feels so real and so grounded and so authentic for, every, for all three of these um, Frontier trilogy. Yeah, Wind River. Ooh, that one's definitely my personal favorite. I think anybody out there, if you've seen Sicario or Hell or High Water, I think those two are a bit more successful for whatever reason. So if you're somebody that likes these movies and wants some more, I think Wind River Austin, right, is still on Netflix? No, Wind River, you can watch it for free with ads on Prime right now. Okay, yeah, as long as you can find it somewhere. I, I would definitely check that one out. That's my personal fave. Uh, okay, so yeah, so we'll be talking about Hell or High Water. Uh, we're going to roll some segue music, and when we come on back, we're going to run through our movie facts for Hell or High Water. All right, Keith, go ahead and run down our cast and crew for your favorite movie. Yeah, so this one is directed by David McKenzie, written by Taylor Sheridan, uh, score composed by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. And then for our cast, we have Mr. Chris Pine as Toby Howard, Ben Foster as Tanner Howard, Jeff Bridges as Marcus Hamilton, and Gil Birmingham as Alberto Parker. So with that, any highlights on the cast and crew? Yeah, I teased it in my intro. My highlight is Chris Pine. I think everything we get from him is so fantastic. And, and I really did find myself like, as we were going through this movie, being like, man, I did not know Chris Pine had this type of range in him. Just I've never seen him play this kind of like brooding, silent, but still charming character. And just the gravitas he brings to this role. I don't know if this movie works without Chris Pine in the lead. Um, I, I certainly can't picture anybody else in this role. So my standout is definitely Chris Pine. I'm kind of in the same boat Keith is. I really don't know when it comes to the cast. I don't know who I would single out. I think they all do a great job. Um, like I did say at the top, I think when it comes to the crew, I think David McKenzie is the director and Taylor Sheridan is the writer. Definitely both deserve shout outs. Uh, and I guess if I challenge myself to pick the best performance, you know, I think despite the jokes we could throw towards the voice choice, which Jeff Bridges does do some weird voices, especially in westerns it seems like i do think the performance is just fantastic so i might go jeff bridges but i do love all of them well since you guys shouted out chris pine and jeff bridges i'll go ahead and shout out ben foster i really liked him as tanner 
he was he he was really good at playing like a maniac, you know, ex-con kind of guy. You can tell he loves his brother, but the dude is crazy, and I think he played it really well. Um, and another one I'll say is Gil Birmingham as Alberto. Probably probably an underrated character of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. The scenes that he has to endure with the Jeff Bridges character are pretty brutal. That's kind of what I was talking about at the beginning. We'll have to get into that more, but it is a little bit weird. Gil Birmingham is great, and I, I like how you can see the anger that is like just boiling like just under the surface of that character but he still has to like kind of maintain his professionalism because of the job that they're in together like they need to be partners because they don't know what kind of danger they're walk- they're walking into so i just love the way how you can kind of see like behind the eyes of gil birmingham's character in this movie i think on on this watching i definitely noticed that a little bit more that you can tell he's like extremely i think he he likes uh, Marcus Jeffords' character, like teasing him and all that. I think that kind of keeps him him going. But I think yeah. behind the scenes, he's like extremely nervous about you know getting hurt or killed on the in the line of duty. You can tell that the bank robbery thing was making him like extremely nervous. And um, whenever he you know was talking to Marcus, saying like, oh, "Man, I'm glad you you know it's awesome you made it to the uh, to retirement without getting killed." He's yeah. like, I hope I'm that lucky. You could, when he said, "I hope I'm not that lucky," you could just see in his eyes that he's like really worried that he's gonna something's gonna happen to him. So yeah, see, the only thing I would disagree with there, Keith, is I don't think he likes Marcus all that much. I think he respects him because clearly Marcus has had a distinguished career. I think he respects him for his career, but I I don't think they're friends in this movie at all. Hmm. Hmm. I gotcha. I guess I'm in the middle because it's weird. Because I think he does like him. But I would say that I don't really know why, and I don't think the movie does a good job of showing that. Like, I actually do get the feeling that they've been working together for a long time. Like, they're relatively close. They clearly have fun with each other, despite the teasing. So I got that vibe, but I guess the period in time they chose leading up to his death, I don't really know why they're friends. They don't, you know, does that make sense? It's like, I get that he likes them, but I don't fully understand why. Um, yeah, so that, that was kind of my thing. Yeah, because you don't really see the fact that Marcus actually cares about this guy until uh, Gil Birmingham's character is dead. Right, which great scene and great acting by Jeff Bridges in both the moments when he's like his reaction. And then one of my favorite scenes in the movie is after he takes the shot and kills Ben Foster's character and he starts laughing, but then like immediately transitions to crying. It's like it's a great reaction, but I agree. It's kind of like. I wish we could have got some more like sweet moments between them to make it feel a bit more impactful, I guess. But, you know. All right. So enough of the cast and crew. Austin, why don't you take us into any fun trivia or any production nightmares, if there are any? Yeah. I don't know if we actually have any nightmares today, but we do have scheduling conflicts. So as we touched on, Taylor Sheridan wrote the screenplay for Hell or I Water in 2011, shortly after leaving the cast of Sons of Anarchy, where he had a recurring role as a deputy for three seasons. He stated he was just kind of bored with acting and wanted to uh, try his hand at writing. And he actually wrote all three of his American Frontier movies kind of like back to back to back. Sheridan's script would end up on the 2012 blacklist of Hollywood's best unproduced screenplays, and Peter Berg would then read the script and become attached as a producer. However, it would still take two more years to get this movie made, as the studio could never agree on a budget or the right cast to portray these characters. Chris Pine is actually the first actor to sign on in 2015, but he had a prior commitment to Star Trek Beyond, which was also scheduled to start shooting later on in 2015, so that meant the studio had to rush production. So because of Pine's hard stop date, they ended up only having 37 days to shoot this movie. I remember that. I remember hearing that this one was shot, like, insanely quick for movies of this 
kind of size and particularly budget. I mean, it's not like an indie or anything. So yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. That's really fast. Yeah, and due to the rush schedule, uh, director David McKenzie um, assembled a bare bones crew and shot the movie without production fixtures, monitors, script supervisors, and even a clapperboard. Um, all of the outdoor scenes were shot with natural light because they didn't have time to build a formal set each day. And the actors, including at the time the 67 year old Jeff Bridges, also had to do all their own stunts because they didn't have time to find stunt doubles during pre production. I think that's part of what makes this movie so good, too, is that it, it all looks really, it looks real. Yeah, I mean, we kind of already talked about it, but I mean, one of the coolest things about the movie is that it feels like this weird, authentic Western, despite it being set in present day. And yeah, I think Keith's right. I think a lot of those elements come from this production aspect, like the natural lighting, the I guess there wasn't any crazy stunts, but the fact that you always know who's who, it's like the actual actors is really cool. And yeah, just everything about it just feels really authentic. And it just is a really crisp and good looking movie. Yeah. And like one of the biggest things of them doing their own stunts meant that like for all the getaway scenes, Ben Foster is actually driving the car like that fast and that high stakes. Like, and I guess there was actually almost like a close incident on set where Ben Foster almost like veered into like a a camera pull and like they almost had a pretty major accident. Damn, jeez. And apparently Chris Pine was like, this is pretty fucked that we're all doing our own stunts, but they all they all were like on board to do it. Yeah, Chris Pine was like, I can't wait to go film Star Trek 3 where I don't have to do any of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> all CGI and everything. Yeah, exactly. On that note, too, Chris Pine actually was the first to sign on because he was looking to break away from the like charming, good looking character that he was known for. He really yeah. wanted to challenge himself and do something new. And that's why he signed on for Hell or High Water. Yeah, I think now, five years on... I think he's looked at as a bit of a versatile actor for good reason. He's done a lot of different type of stuff, comedy, drama, tons of action, obviously. But this was probably the start of that, I would say. I mean, this was a big deal that he was in like just a pretty straightforward drama for the most part, because that was not what he was doing at the time. And I think you said it earlier, Austin. Yeah, he just you don't really don't you really don't even recognize him in this movie. I mean, he just plays like this really quiet, like stoic man. And yeah, he's. You know, he barely really talks the entire time. He's so dirty, too. (laughs) Yeah, he looks like he smells. I feel I'm not even joking. Like, he just looks like he stinks in this movie. Um, It's kind of funny that you say that, Keith, because now it's making me think uh, another reason why this feels like a weirdly, not typical Western, but another reason why I think it's a Western is because you mentioned people like John Wayne or certainly like Clint Eastwood. I mean, the main characters in all like the classic Westerns are the stoic, quiet type, and they found a way to put that kind of stereotype in this movie, but still make them really deep and you understand what they're doing. But yeah, I haven't thought about that before, but it is kind of the typical Western protagonist slash hero. It's the quiet, stoic people. That stoic, uh, quiet, you know, strong type in the Western movies is typically for our heroes, but you can almost argue that in this movie, the main characters are the villains. I mean, they are the ones that the lawmen are going after. So they did apply it to these characters too yeah that's a great point despite their intentions which i would say are noble and good um they're i it's it's like what i mean people always point to sopranos or the wire or breaking bad shows where a lot of bad characters are at the forefront and they're not necessarily punished for their actions until maybe a finale or just like you know way later on i guess this would be the same thing right i mean i wasn't really yeah. rooting for the them godfather necessarily. Too. yeah but I w- it was interesting to find out about their kind of their motivations and 
and all that. But yeah, I, would, I mean, the cops are the good guys, the ones going after them, I would say. So Ben Foster is a method actor. And when he was cast in this film, he took an electric drill and chiseled out a chunk of his tooth. However, when he arrived on set, the producers made him get the tooth capped. So instead, <laughs> he had the tooth elongated and yellowed. Ew. I was, yeah, I was actually going to say, I was going to bring it up later, but I, I was wondering what they did to achieve that like look he had. Because clearly, that's not his normal teeth. Or So that, that's insane. That's stupid. Like, let's just let's just be honest. Like, there are method actors out there. Daniel Day Lewis, like infamously, like he does like one movie every five years because he spends like one or two fully in character living off the grid, preparing and living in that role. But he's not fucking cutting his teeth out. He's not Shia LaBeouf, (laughs) who does the movie Fury. and is like, I think my character should have a scar. So he takes a real knife and drags it across his face. That's if you want to call it method acting. Cool. I would call it fucking pointless. You want to know the crazier part about that story? I'm really nervous that it gets crazier. (laughs) So even though he showed up on set and the producers made him get the tooth capped, he actually drilled out his tooth while he was drunk with director David McKenzie. (laughs) They both were having cocktails one night and uh, Ben Foster showed up with the drill and he was like, I'm going to do this. And David McKenzie apparently was like, oh, fuck yeah, that'll be awesome, man. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) That's really funny. That's a little, that's better than him like just, you know, being sober and thinking that up. Yeah, I, I guess mean. you're I guess that's true. I, I guess I would agree with that. Well, yeah. hold on though, Keith. Hold on though, Keith, because he did bring the drill to drinks with the director. So <laughs> okay, he did get so the yeah. idea while he was sober. He did want to do it then, okay. Can you imagine showing up to a meeting with your boss just carrying an electric drill? That's probably another reason why Chris Pine was like excited to go do Star Trek 3. He was like, these people are insane. I can't understand what Jeff Bridges is saying. My brother in this movie is fucking insane in real life and on screen. Like He's like, I gotta get out of here. Get me back to the Enterprise. Get me back to the pointy-eared guy. So despite the already short uh, 37-day shoot, Chris Pine actually only had two and a half weeks to film his scenes before his hard stop for Star Trek Beyond. Jesus Christ. He's in like all of them. (laughs) That's insane. They had to shoot all of those scenes in order. So that way, like Chris Pine knew, basically he, they wanted him to know like the stakes of the heist and all that. So they did all that stuff in order. That is pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, that's crazy. And on that note too, the final confrontation scene between Pine and Bridges was actually Pine's last day of shooting and Bridges' first day of shooting. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask if he did it in two weeks. that's their only scene together. Yeah. I was going to say if they did it in two weeks and they had all those extra days, that's kind of what I was wondering. I guess they must have done like all the brother stuff. And then the last week, couple weeks was all the Bridges and um, Gil Birmingham stuff. Yeah, so they did all of Pine stuff in order, and then with those extra days, that's when they kind of added all those like extra filler scenes. Gotcha. That's pretty cool. Taylor Sheridan's uncle was actually a U.S. Marshal who was forced into an early retirement due to his age, so that's where that character comes from. And due to the small cast and crew, there were weekly barbecues and production meetings. At these meetings, Jeff Bridges and Gil Birmingham would play guitar and sing songs for the crew. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. That is cool. That's really cool. Just chilling in West Texas. I didn't get the full context on this, but apparently Chris Pine and Jeff Bridges had an, had an evening where like Jeff Bridges invited Chris Pine over to his trailer and he was like, we're going to do some music. And so Chris Pine describes it as like literally he was hanging out with Jeff Bridges in a bathrobe. Bridges was playing his guitar, drinking white rushes, and they were just hanging out. And he like <laughs> he gave an interview and he was like, I'm literally hanging out with the dude right now from the Big Lebowski. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Jeff Bridges is so cool. 
All right, so that's our fun facts and production nightmares segment. Matt, what did the critics think of Hell or High Water upon release? Alrighty, so I'll keep this one pretty quick because there's really not much to say. This movie received universal acclaim. That's kind of all there is to it. It has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, and they were kind of saying the consensus over there was Hell or High Water offers a solidly crafted, well-acted Western heist thriller that eschews mindless gunplay in favor of confident pacing and full-bodied characters. It was called a complex narrative, one of the best screenplays of the year, and a smart mix of bank robber stories and character studies. It ended up being nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor for Jeff Bridges, Best Original Screenplay, Best Film Editing, and the big one, Best Picture, which it did end up losing to Moonlight. So, any thoughts, my friends? Yeah, I think I pretty much agree with all of that. I, th- I think the best thing I can say is their bit about how it, it does away from mindless gunplay for smarter character development. That was actually the thing I was the most worried about when I came into this movie, is they set this up to be a Western. And I was like, how the hell is this going to work in modern day? Because Westerns are known for their shootouts. And it's a little easier when you're in the 1800s Wild West because it's kind of like a lawless area. Everybody's kind of out for themselves. It's easier to set up like big gunfights. And in this movie, there's really only one big gunfight scene. And the way it plays out is uh, in the context of the events, it makes sense. And so I really appreciated the fact that they did away from just dumb shootouts and, and focused more time on establishing the characters. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think all the bank robberies were fairly realistic. In West Texas towns, I mean, a lot of it is lawless, where there only there there is only one sheriff per like county or something like that. Where if something goes south, I mean, a lot of the a lot of these people have guns and they're going to take matters into their own hands. Well, we see that. We see that. Yeah. Happen. <laughs> Get in the trucks, boys! Let's go after him! <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that was a bigger cavalry than it maybe would have been in real life, but I mean, for the most part, I believe it. Dude, I was laughing so hard in that scene, because we all went to high school with people who would be the, the very oh kids in God. those trucks. And I was I like, exactly what the fuck <laughs> are these people And he said the bank's being robbed! Let's go, Why would you, you just witnessed these people shoot up a bank. Why would you get in your truck and chase after these people? I'm going the opposite direction of wherever these two are going. You know what I'll say, though? At least those people, I would say, are 100% more reasonable than the racist old man at the beginning that is just like, he's the only guy in the bank and he has a gun. Oh, yeah. And then the second they leave, he shoots two windows and then <laughs> is shooting at them in the car. He's like, you guys ain't Mexicans. It's like, oh my God, that's very authentic though. Very realistic, I'll say. Yep, very true, yeah. very true. In terms, and I guess at, at the end, at least these people are going after guys that literally killed two people. So I guess it's a little bit more justified. And, and kind of on that point, the action, as you put it, Austin, in this movie, is really realistic, and I would say it's, like, dirty. It's kind of gross. I mean, it's not filmed in a cool way, you know? Like, watching people die in this movie is kind of scary. It's kind of... And it's sad. Oh, yeah. Like, it, for it's, sure. it's filmed yeah. really well. I think a lot of that is also due to just the skeleton crew that this uh, yep. that this cast and crew is working with. I mean, they didn't have time to stage events. They had, like... Maybe they could do, like, two or three reshoots, but they had to get it right on the first take. So it was literally, like... Let's set things up and just see what happens. And I think for the most part, what they got on tape was was pretty incredible. Before I move on from this part, I'm actually looking right now at the Academy Award for Best Picture on Wikipedia. And this is how stacked this year was, by the way. Just listen to what was nominated in 2016. Like I said, Moonlight won. And then you have Arrival, Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, La La Land, 
Lion, Manchester by the Sea. Jesus Christ. What a stacked year. Damn. Damn. All of those movies I thought were more recent than 2016. Five years ago. Ugh. <laughs> I know. That felt like two years ago. <laughs> Arrival yeah. was also... Is Arrival Dennis Villanueva or is that David McKenzie? It is. Yeah, it's Denis Villanueva with uh, Jeremy Renner, Amy Adams, all that crew. Well, I guess there's also the connection. There's the connection there. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, he also does Sicario with uh, Taylor Sheridan as well. Yeah. Cool. Awesome, Matt. Thanks for breaking down the critics. And with that, everybody, let's get in to our roundtable discussion. So this movie definitely feels like a character piece primarily, I would say. We've already talked about that a little bit. There are other factors that I think can make or break stories like this with that kind of focus, but I think the characters are certainly the main one. Overall, I think this is a really solid movie. I really enjoyed it. This is only my second time seeing it, but I still would say definitely awesome. Um, My only real issue, I don't even know if it's a criticism, I don't know what I would call it. It's just Admittedly, I did find all of the characters except Alberto unlikable. And of course, I think they're all on different ranges of unlikable, some being very, some just being, eh, you're doing this for a very bad reason, whatever. But I do think they come around at the end for the most part, but there was just a lot of moments throughout where I was like, I really don't like these people. (laughs) So I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that. Yeah, I think for me, the only one that comes around at the end is the Jeff Bridges character. Yeah. I think overall, everybody else stayed the same as how I felt about them at the beginning of the movie. And that being, I like Chris Pine's character at the beginning. I think he stays likable for the most part. Ben Foster, I love the performance, don't love the character. And then Alberto, I think, is a great character and a, and a good guy um, throughout the movie. So, yeah, I, I didn't really change my perception on anybody except the Jeff Bridges character. And to your point, yeah, the Ben Foster character is supposed to be unlikable. Like I said, great performance, just you can't really root for that character. Yeah, Gil um, Birmingham as Alberto was obviously probably the most likable. Jeff Bridges as Marcus, yeah, even though he's kind of, he can be kind of a shithead and he's like always teasing Alberto, I, you know, deep down he's a good guy and he's just, you know, he's trying to do right. And then Ben Foster's character is obviously a piece of shit. I mean, he's <laughs> just <laughs> an ex-con. And while he does have a love for his brother and all that, he's just gets a kick out of killing people and robbing banks and really doesn't give a shit about the money. He just uses that as an excuse. That's actually the thing I enjoy the most about Jeff Bridges' character is he is really good at psychoanalyzing these brothers. He kind of nails down their motivations almost immediately. I think that's the only reason you get the scene at the end because he was able to deduce that really easily whereas everybody else is like, there's literally zero evidence to what you're saying. And it's like, because they have those scenes throughout of him explaining his thoughts on things it actually makes sense that he firmly believes that you know chris pine was the other accomplice and it's like this is really cool yeah and yeah and with chris pine's character i mean he is half halfway piece of shit too because he's robbing he's choosing to rob these banks even you know he's willing to break the law in order to get ahead for his family's ranch but uh i really like the scene with him and his son sitting out in the backyard one thing that is likable about him is that he does kind of know uh, he's shitty, you know, he, he just tells his son, he's like, whatever you hear about me and your uncle, you know, believe yeah. all of it. I mean, it's all true. So I did, I did like that, that aspect of his character. Kind of a twist too on how that scene would normally go where it's like, you're going to see some things about us. None of it's true. I did really like how he was like, you got to believe all of it and you got to do the exact opposite of everything uh, myself and your uncle did. I, I really enjoyed that scene. And it, it honestly 
that was one of the main scenes that made me like Chris Pine's character even more so as the movie went on. Yeah, I guess I, I should say that I love his character. I love this this idea, you know what I mean? I just, as a person, it's like, ah, am I supposed to root for this guy? I can't tell. So that's more of what it is for me. Um, another point in his corner, Keith, another thing I love, that, and kind of like you said, Austin, as well, that it's not what you expect is that scene at the end, whenever his ex-wife drives back up uh, with the kids, it's like, oh, I guess they're back together. I guess because he kind of, I shouldn't say he got his shit together, obviously, but you know what I mean? It's like, because things are changing for them, maybe she came back around and it's like, oh no, like they're not together. And it's also cool that he's not reaping any of the benefits, which is what like, not what you would expect either. He's not living there. He's living in like a small place. Like he only did this for them. And it's like, huh, kind of interesting. So it's a point in his corner. It's just throughout. It's kind of interesting. And I love Jeff Bridges throwing in his face like, no. You killed my partner, not your dumb fuck brother. It was you. You're the smart one. You put the plan in motion. I blame you, basically. So it's like the reason he's dead is because of you. And it's like, all right, yeah, that is true. I do believe it. So it's very conflicting. But I guess it's what you want from these types of stories yeah. with like bad people at the forefront. It's like, I guess you want to feel conflicted. And so maybe I'm already kind of contrary to my own point. So maybe I do actually really like that aspect of it. I guess I shouldn't be fully on board with Chris Pine the whole time. I shouldn't be rooting for him. So I guess you know, that's another point to Taylor Sheridan writing-wise. Also, something I want to bring up there is just because you mentioned Jeff Bridges, I want to talk about that character a little bit more. What, what do you think it is about his character? Is he, is he just insecure about retirement? Like, Do you think it's the fact that he's worried he doesn't have much else beyond being a Texas Ranger, which is why he's so gung-ho to solve this case. Like, do you think he, it's just like an insecurity of he has to solve these cases to prove that he's worth just more than being a, a, a Texas Ranger? Yeah, like, I think you're right there. I think he is insecure about retirement. He's worried about what he's going to do and where he's going to be. I mean, he, his, he did mention that his wife, you know, is dead and yeah. all that. So he really, he really doesn't have any family. And then Alberto teases him on that front. Like, what are you going to be doing? Just sitting on that porch all day fishing? He's like, I can't fish all damn day. So I guess he's just a workaholic. <laughs> that's what it is, I think. I think that's it's the fact that he'll, he's going to go from working constantly because he has no reason not to. He has nobody to rely on him. So he can work constantly. And now he has to go to a point where he's working absolutely not at all. So I think, I think you're right, Austin, in your kind of a evaluation of why he is the way he is. And maybe this is giving too much credit to the writing, but maybe that's where the bullying comes from of this character, as it is those insecurities. That's where, I mean, I agree. Ugh, I don't know. I'm not trying to be on a soapbox right now. It's like bullying. <laughs> he is a bull. Yeah, he is bullying him. But the problem is, and it's weird because, again, it is oddly a point in favor of the authenticity of this movie. Like an older man like Jeff Bridges from West Texas, I'm not generalizing, but the fact that, he, I mean, he's racist. He has racist tendencies. What he's, I think he does care about this person, but the stuff he says to the level he says it, like the amount is like, okay, man, it's kind of gross. Yeah. These are clearly like deeply held beliefs that he's spouting out. I think it's authentic. And I would say a point to the writing is by the end, like Austin said, when he does have this kind of character turn and he does see this person die and he does react to it, it's like, you can still like that character, and it does feel like they grew, but I just think they could have probably held back a little bit in the lead up because it was like every scene he was in, it was like, oh, there's another joke. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. So it, it was a little bit, I think, goofy at times. Um, okay, so speaking of Taylor Sheridan's writing, I do feel like this movie is just a masterclass in effective storytelling. 
The movie takes its time and can definitely be described as a slow burn, but somehow it's still under two hours. Despite the short runtime, I still felt like I knew every character's backstory and motivations from just a few short scenes of dialogue. It's such a credit to Taylor Sheridan and something he does just as well in his other American Frontier films. I mean, we talk about the MCU all the time on this show. Think about those main characters. Every single one of them has their own movie, two hours plus just to establish one character. Taylor Sheridan does all that and more with maybe like 10 minutes of solo scenes from each character. That's a great point. We, I mean, how many times when talking about the MCU have we had to say the line, that character was cool, but I mean, they don't get good until the third one. Taylor Sheridan did four like perfectly well-rounded, like deep characters in an hour and 42 minutes, I think it was. Um, so yeah, again, another reason it's like, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> All the lines were just, just short enough to, you know, not reveal too much, but just long enough to reveal a little bit of each person's backstory with Alberto and his, what his wife had playing with Galveston and, uh, Marcus's mm -hmm. retirement and then Tanner's backstory with being in prison for 10 or 12 years. And then Toby's, uh, family divorce and the whole ranch thing going on with the with the mortgage and all that. It was, it was all there, and you, you, you understood what everything was going on without them having to explain it all for three or four hours. They also did a really good job of having other characters like not speak in exposition, but speak about the other characters in ways that inform that character. So, for example, like whenever Jeff Bridges is psychoanalyzing Ben Foster's character, it's like he's saying things that we, the audience, don't know yet about his past and about like what he is and what he's done and maybe why he's doing what he's doing like that that he likes it that's why he's doing it and it's like oh wow okay so a different character is like informing me about another character's like depth in a weird way it's not something you see a lot so that was another cool thing i noticed on this rewatch do you guys have any standout just like spoken word scenes from this movie that stick out in your minds I mean, right off the top, I guess it would be like the hotel scene with Alberto and uh, Marcus. And, you know, Marcus is once again digging into Alberto on his Mexican half and his Indian half and doing all those insults to him while he's laying in bed. You can just see Alberto just is quiet and like, you know, unsteady. And Yeah, like he literally turns over. Like He's like, I'm just I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to like basically exit this conversation, essentially. Just for um, establishing backstory in like really quick dialogue, I really enjoy the first scene of of Toby and Tanner um, on their ranch talking about their childhood. It's very quick, but you learn like really quickly. Their dad was abusive. Uh, at some point, Tanner had to kill the dad, and then the mom hated Tanner for that, and, and Tanner eventually went to prison. So you just learn immediately that these two kids were born into a poor situation in life. And then they've just had such a tragic upbringing as well. And it's maybe a six minute scene. Like it doesn't take up a lot of time at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the whole crux of the thing. Like Chris Pine says, I mean, I'm only doing this so that my kids don't share our same fate. So, yeah. Um, as for a line that I love, it's of course got to be at the end with our uh, Marcus and Toby confrontation i just love that like they get interrupted by his ex-wife and kids arriving so it's like they have to kind of play it cool and then whenever he does have that quick moment to himself um chris pine's character is like do you want to finish this conversation here's where i'll be and maybe i can bring you some peace and then of course uh jeff bridges is just like maybe i'll bring you some peace <laughs> like you'll never be at peace not as long as you live and i'll make sure that 
it's not going to be a long time that you live. It was like, oh gosh, like what a what a kind <laughs> what a cool ending because it's one of those weird movies where it's like we're not supposed to have theories in a movie like this. I feel like, but God, I really want to know what happened because we know we know that they had another confrontation and one of them died. We know that, and I don't know who it would be. I really don't. My theory when I when I first watched it back in 2016, I thought like, wow, maybe they're gonna like put their differences aside and they're gonna just meet up every now and then and just talk and hmm. not try to kill each other. That's, that was my theory on it. Maybe. I also could see just, because they're both kind of, they're resigned to their fates. I think they both are. I definitely could see them both having a duel and just, you know, seeing who has the yeah. quicker draw. Yeah. Uh, another line that I liked, we didn't list him on our cast, but it was by Kevin Rankin, who played their attorney. Yeah. That meeting they have with him before they go rob some more banks, and, and he's kind of explaining what they need to do in order to cover their tracks. I think Toby says something like, no one's going to know, right? And he's like, "What? know what? It's like, y'all just want a bunch of money gambling, right? He says something like that. I don't know why that scene just was so cool. Yeah, that's a really cool scene. I like that one a lot. And I love Kevin Rankin. He's a really good actor. I love seeing him pop up in yeah. a bunch of TV shows. First time in Breaking Bad, obviously. Is he in Matt's favorite show, Lucifer? He might be. Who's to say? Oh. Yeah, another thing that this movie does really well for me is uh, dividing the stories of the brothers and the Texas Rangers. Did you guys like how they were separated the entire time, or would you have rather to be intermingled with these guys closer? No, I, I like that they were separated till the end. I, I really enjoyed the kind of cat and mouse game, where it's, it seems like Marcus and Alberto are going to catch up to Tanner and Toby, uh, and then they're both kind of in a, in a different town, and then they, they both realize where they need to go, and they have to race there. I really like that tension building at the end. Yeah, I mean, the reason it works is because of the tension, like you just said. I think the reason that I like that they're separated, uh, and I especially noticed it on this rewatch, but I was like, oh, this is really cool because if you're someone watching this for the first time, you really have no idea what's going to happen when they meet because they never do. So it's like, are they going to kill them? And it's like, how are they going to run into them? And then you have that great scene where they, where Jeff Bridges' character is basically like, I know which bank they're going to hit next. And they start driving there and it gets hit while they're driving. And it's like, oh, shit, like what's going to happen when these characters meet? Is it a shootout or is it a conversation? I have no idea. And so then when it gets to, of course, the standoff, it's like, wow, I did not expect this to happen. So it's really just a great way to build tension and be surprising. So that's why I appreciate it a lot. It's done super well. Speaking of the end, though, do you guys think that Tanner's character needs to become a murderer at the end of this movie. For me, it was such a, a drastic shift from these sympathetic characters just trying to escape the situation they were born into to, hey, I'm going to kill innocent people in the bank and then just start shooting police at, at, at will. And then just kind of to add on to that, do you guys think that this also then makes Toby a harder character to root for by association? Because the only reason that his plan ended up succeeding was because they killed a bunch of people and Toby kept arguing throughout the movie that they were only hurting the banks, not everyday people. I think it was probably necessary for Tanner's character. You know, no matter what childhood he came from, which was pretty fucked up childhood, but the guy was still a guy who got off on murdering people. I mean, he killed his own dad. Not to say his dad didn't deserve it, but he did kill his own dad, which probably sent him into violence in prison. So yeah, I think it did make sense to kind of establish that at the end, that, that Tanner and Toby are not the same group of people. No, no matter, you know, if they're brothers or friends or whatever, Toby's different. And then, you know, Toby was yelling at him, you know, you weren't supposed to kill him. You know, I didn't know we we're going to kill anybody. And so Toby, by association, yeah, it makes it harder to root for Toby. But I think, uh, yeah, Toby was really not wanting that to happen. I think he would have rather sacrificed his plan to get the money. 
like Toby does kind of like he does end up getting Tanner's stink on him just by association. Like, what what do you think about that? No, for sure, and it's well well deserved association. I mean, if he was running around with his maniac brother, you should you should probably be prepared to get some get some uh, dirt on you as well if you're gonna choose to do that. I think you're 100 right, Keith. I think it was definitely necessary for the story, but I think I guess I don't fully know Austin's thoughts on it, but I'm guessing. Based on what you just said, I also agree with you that it is jarring. I mean, yes, you could argue that Tanner, they did set up in subtle ways, well, and, and some not so subtle ways, that he does have a violent background. One of my favorite subtle examples is whenever um, Toby wakes him up for the new day, and like you can tell it's like the whole prison instinct kicking in. Like he tries to shake him awake, and he just immediately like tries to grab him or attack what's like whatever's in front of him. Um, so they set that up decently well. It doesn't mean that whenever he quote-unquote, sacrifices himself to snipe at cops. It's not a little bit weird. Like, it's like, okay. Like, it was, again, not saying I was rooting for him, but whenever he killed the people in the bank, at least you could say that they did have guns on him and they were going to kill him. So it's like, okay, I guess I get it. But it is a whole different thing when he's just like, you go ahead, Toby, I got this. And he's literally killing cops with a sniper from, like like like, a cliff. It's like... Okay, this is a bit much, maybe. But again, like uh, like kind of you said, Keith, I think we don't get that amazing ending unless we lose people from both sides. If Tanner doesn't die, and if if Gil doesn't die, I don't think we get that amazing epilogue confrontation. But yeah, I think in order to get there, to answer your initial question, Austin, I think we did sacrifice a little bit of kind of the um, characters they were setting up. Really, I guess only Tanner, I would say, is the only one that gets a little bit sacrificed. Yeah, he was crazy. He was an asshole. But they never really... I never expected he would do that. So I guess you lose a little bit of the character growth at that point. Yeah, I never expected these two to be heroes at all in this film. That's not what the movie was setting up. They were pretty good protagonists, though, especially... Like, they're very easy to root for because of their backstories and because of the fact that, yes, they are committing crimes, but like Toby is setting up, they're not committing crimes against everyday people. It's against the financial institutions that caused the crashes that resulted in the states that these towns are in at the moment. So like, it's really easy to root for their plan. But as soon as they then start gunning down people in the streets, I just think it becomes really hard to root for them in, in the final closing scenes of this movie. It's not a bad thing. Like Every Western, if it's the genre, for sure, every Western has a great shootout. And, the, and this shootout really does work into the story effectively. It just, I think it did sacrifice these sympathetic characters that they were setting up for the more majority of the movie. I also do think it's cool, and you kind of mentioned it already, Austin, it's like, I wouldn't say we're rooting for anybody the whole time, but then at the end, because of Tanner dying and Toby being still out there, I do find myself rooting for Jeff Bridges in the epilogue. I like the fact that he's this retired cop now. It's like, he could be killed for trespassing. He has no authority. So it is. it does make it a really cool scene, even more so in the epilogue when he's trying to take him down still. And it's like, I am rooting for him there. So it does give me an opportunity to finally actually root for somebody in this movie. So that's another cool benefit. So, Do y'all think there would have been like a, a less or more impactful ending if they would have um, had an alternate ending with Jeff Bridges being killed? I don't know. I guess what they were going for is they killed the one innocent person, right? So it's like, how does that impact our characters? And we we talked a little bit about how like Jeff Bridges' character is a little bit of a bully and is like a little bit racist. And it's like, uh, he's kind of hard to root for. It's kind of weird. Even though I do want these bank robbers caught, 
But then in the epilogue, it's another thing. Like, Keith, you you put it so perfectly. It's like, this is a really weird scene, right, that he does this. It's weird. But it does lead to such an amazing scene. So it's like they sacrificed a little bit along the way to give us such an amazing ending. And I think if it's Gil at the end, that would be cool. But I think his reaction to Jeff Bridges dying isn't the same. So I think having a character that was less innocent become a bit more innocent, still trying to bring justice to all involved, including his partner's death, might be the better ending. So I don't know. I'm glad you mentioned the epilogue there, Matt, because I think almost every single scene in this movie is pretty perfect. There was one scene, however, that really stood out to me that just did not work at all. I'm not sure how you guys feel. This might be a nitpicky thing, but... This movie does not do any exposition, as we talked about, for the entire film. Until, after the shootout, Marcus goes back to the office. It's some time later now. He meets with his with his counterpart in the office. And then she just proceeds to explain to us the entirety of Toby's plan. I don't think we need this scene at all. I do not think we need her going like... They found oil in, in, on this land, and he's a, he's a perfect citizen. He's never He's never been guilty of anything. How do you guys feel about that? For me, it felt so unnecessary, and it really felt like the director and the writer were really worried people weren't going to understand why this plan was going to work out for the kids, and so yeah. they just added this in there as like an extra scene. Yeah, that's why it's there. Yeah. It's a, it's a studio edition, I'm sure, like a studio note type thing. But yeah, they didn't need him going back to the office after he's retired. Oh, hey, Marcus, come on in. Here's the <laughs> here's the the file that I, I'm, you know, not even legally allowed to show you. I know, then- <laughs> you're retired. She keeps saying you're retired. But then she, like, gives him all this, like, enclosed information. <laughs> it's also weird because, like you said, Austin, it's like we get scenes before that that are way better that already give us this information. Like, after Tanner dies, seeing Toby go to the Texas Midland Bank, they did a good job of setting up, like, how he hates these people for what he did to his mom, for what they did to his mom, I should say. Um, it's really cool to see him cover his tracks, which Kevin Rankin kind of gave him the ability to do. He gave him the idea. So watching him go back to them to get the trust. And then we also find out there about like the oil. It's like, oh, this is really interesting. And then it's just like it, it shows how smart Toby is. It's like he had oil in this land the whole time. It's like, so why is he robbing banks? And it's like, oh, so he could lock in this trust, not let him sell. And then this is how he ensures his family's like lifelong uh, financial stability, which was the whole goal. So it's like, yeah, it's pretty cool how they handle that. And then you're right. Then there's randomly just a scene where like, hey, Marcus, hey, I don't think it's Toby. Yeah, he's a great citizen, never been to jail. Did you know there's oil on his land? <laughs> it's like, it's just a little goofy. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked about the epilogue a lot. I don't have much more to say about it, except I just loved it. And this is the perfect place to close out with the end of the movie itself. So do you guys have any closing thoughts on the movie? Any thoughts on the epilogue? Just anything in general? I just love the line where uh, Toby points out like being born poor is a disease and it's not a disease that my kids are going to suffer from. I-, I just thought that piece of writing was so, so great for his, for that character because he fully believes that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think we already mentioned it, but yeah, when they were talking about giving each other peace, he's like, like, you'll never find peace. It's going to haunt you for the rest of your days. Very Which cool. kind of gives me the inclination that maybe, yeah, he's not wanting to kill him. I think he just wants to talk to him out of pure boredom from retirement and maybe not become friends, but become some sort of acquaintances that they can see each other now and then and just have an understanding. I think he's just looking to understand what Alberto died for. I think he wants there to be some some sort of reason behind his death. Yeah, that's true. So it probably does help in a weird way that they talk about family because he mentions Chris Pine's like, do you have a family? He's like, no, Alberto had a big one, though. I don't know. I could see it either way. I could honestly see it that like 
a couple months later, Jeff Bridges, as a retired cop, like with a hood on or something like being stealthy or whatever, kills him in his sleep or something. I don't know. Like the departed Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Yeah. Or I could also see it where, like Keith said, he just leaves him be to rot in his kind of guilt that he'll, of course, over time end up feeling so. I don't know, but I like that the movie kind of ends with that because I didn't expect an ambiguous ending with a movie like this, but I think it's really effective. Okay, so we're going to start closing things out, but uh, Keith, we've now discussed Hell or High Water for about an hour. Do you have any closing thoughts on one of your favorite films? Hmm, closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. I would definitely say this movie is rewatchable for sure. I don't think it's a very long movie. But yeah, it's definitely impactful for all the reasons we already just listed out, and it does have some good action in there as well. And it's just a fun story overall, and I think it's a good Western, and I'm a sucker for Western, so that's why it's one of my favorite movies, especially from the, you know, recently, from the past decade. It'll probably be in the top two or three uh, of the decade for me. And I really want to go watch uh, Wind River now, because after seeing this one in Sicario, and you know, not knowing that those by the same people, now I really do want to go watch Wind River now. You'll like Wind River a lot, I think, Keith. Yeah, you'll love Wind River. Um, I really like that you mentioned rewatchability because I, I think that's something you can say for all three of these American frontier films. I think the credit's got to go to Taylor Sheridan because he's a connecting piece there. But the way this yeah. dude writes these films is just amazing, and all the characters are compelling. Hell or High Water, especially, I, I think he really nails that Texas setting. Uh, you can tell, you know, it's where he grew up. It's where he probably has a fondness for. So, yeah, I, I thought this movie was incredible. I'm really glad you suggested this, Keith, because I really enjoyed watching it. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. I just think this was a great pick. It's always fun to talk about modern movies in this kind of weird, like, retrospective sense. It's like we always, like, go to older movies as being the pinnacle or whatever, like, for our favorites. But this was fun. I, of course, had a little bit of, I had some nitpicks here and there, but the best thing I can say is you guys did a really good job of like making me go, oh, I guess that was on purpose. I did like that. So I, got, I like the movie even more now. So this was a good one. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, my friends, before we get out of here today, we do, of course, need to do the Arnie's Podcast Awards for Hell or High Water. If you're new this week, this is a segment where we give an award to anything in this episode. Keith always starts us off. Keith, what is your award today? Dang, I think my award today is going to be to the waitress from the uh, the diner. Oh, wait, which diner? Which diner? There are multiple diners. That's a good question, Matt. Oh, yeah, Which true. diner are you referencing? <laughs> the steak and potato lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one goes to her, and that goes for like one of the funniest lines I couldn't stop laughing at was, <laughs> what don't you want? <laughs> what don't you want? <laughs> Either you don't want the green beans or you don't want the corn. And then Jeff Bridges responds as wah, 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 beans. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I am uh, I'm upset because Keith stole my award. I was also gonna give an award to this diner waitress. Give it to her. Do it. Fuck it. <laughs> maybe maybe one of the most iconic characters ever created and put on screen, but I'm gonna give the uh give me them taters award because Ooh. I want some of those potatoes. The way yeah, she was too. talking about them, they sounded tasty. Everybody yeah. who comes in here orders the same thing, steak and baked potato. Only <laughs> except for good. this one asshole from New York that came <laughs> in in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was funny. I haven't had a baked potato in years. and We got to go to one, one of these one places. We record. Yeah, we got to. I know. That's, oh, that's true. You got to get it loaded, too. Sour mm-hmm. cream, cheese, chives. 
don't know if you mentioned it, Austin, but uh, as part of the uh, trivia, but um, that lady's actually the waitress for that that diner in Coleman. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's awesome. She actually works there. They just got her to be in the movie. Speaking of that too, Keith, actually the majority of this movie is filmed in New Mexico for tax reasons. It was cheaper to film in New Mexico than Texas. Makes sense. It, look, it looked like those towns in Texas, though. It really did. I mean, yeah, you guys, really we did. all know yeah. that. Driving through those towns looked exactly like it. So I guess New Mexico just has those too. All right, Matt, what is your award? Close us out today. So I was thinking about it, and I was like, we need to bring back some of our honorary awards, I think. We, of course, we started oh. we started the award game with probably the most iconic, which was the Mark Hamill Most Improved Award. For those that don't know or don't remember, we gave this to Mark Hamill initially because we thought his performance from A New Hope was so bad, but so good in Empire Strikes Back. So we were just so impressed that he improved so much. I'm going to be giving another honorary award, and this time, my friends, it is... And feel free to use it in the future if you need to. The Ben Foster Honorary Most Unnecessary Award. And that's for that's for <laughs> shaving his teeth with an electric drill. <laughs> because look, when I watched the movie, did I go, why do his teeth look like that? I did. So I guess in a way it worked, but that's a lifelong choice, my friend, and not a good one to make for such a little payoff. You are forgetting, though, Matt, the only reason his teeth look like that is not from the drilling. It's from the fact that he was stubborn. They said, go get your teeth fixed. And he said, no, and elongated it and then stained it yellow. Pretty unnecessary. (laughs) (laughs) He did it kind of late, too. I mean, he should have done that for 310 to Yuma when he's in the 1800s, you know, as Charlie Prince. That would have been a very necessary choice. All right, everybody. Well... That's going to do it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss any of our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really do appreciate that so we can continue to grow the show. At The Arnie's is our social and thearnies.media is the website. We'll be back next week as we continue this Our Favorite Movies series. It'll be time to discuss one of my personal favorite movies, Prisoners with Hugh Jackman. Oh. That's Austin. a really good movie. Very good choice, because I, I have not prisoners. seen it yet. So, <gasps> Oh, yes. I'm so yes. glad you haven't seen that. Another connection, Austin. Directed by Denis Villeneuve. David McKenzie. No. <laughs> Why do you ke- How do you mix up these people? <laughs> they're, they're nowhere close. <laughs> David McKenzie did this movie, and uh, Denis Villeneuve did Sicario. So I, I always just think of the Taylor Sheridan connection. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, that is the connection between them, yeah. So yeah, Keith, this is one of my favorite thrillers of uh, the recent decade, so I I can't wait for you to check it out. Ooh, nice. I'm excited. pick. This is a good pick. So yeah, stay tuned for that. That's going to be super exciting, super fun. We have more fun content on the way as well. And in the meantime, like we mentioned at the top, we are reviewing each and every episode of Loki as they come out. And since they're releasing on Wednesdays now, we will release our episodes talking about it in depth, including spoilers on Fridays. Yeah, so yeah, please check us out on Instagram at the Arnie's. Feel free to direct message us your thoughts on this episode and upcoming episodes. And like Matthew said, please go back and uh, listen to our Loki episode. Uh, this of episode one just came out, and look forward to episode two coming out next week. And go back and listen to Conjuring. The Devil Made Me Do It. And look forward to us covering Austin's favorite movie, Prisoners. All right, everybody, have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. See ya.